America's unknown child, an alias for a little boy unknown to the world, was a tragic enigma. His seemingly forgotten and abandoned life was cut short by an unexplainable, unsolved death in the days leading up to February 25th, 1957, leaving all who followed the John Doe case both locally and across the United States grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. As a hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the unidentified legacy of the boy in the box and the unexplainable backstory to his life before he was discovered in the woods off Susquehanna Road in Fox Chase, Philadelphia. This is Cold Case Detective. Unlike most of the incidents we investigate here on Cold Case Detective, America's unknown child's anonymous anomaly leaves us without a victim, at least one with an identity or known history. It's quite the peculiar case. Instead of looking for someone whose life was taken from them by an unknown assailant or someone who went missing without a trace, we are instead attempting to determine a human being's existence before their mystery even began. Therefore, a complete profile of the victim is mostly unavailable, leaving us only with shaky forensic clues and theoretical characterization. In the case of the boy in the box, the reality is the child could have come from anywhere in the country. However, it is more than likely he was local to the eastern side of the United States and probably Philadelphia itself. It's feasible he lived in another state or city and then was transported to Fox Chase after his murder, but the possibility of someone risking interference by the police or running into another complicated situation with a dead child in tow doesn't seem likely. In fact, he was probably placed in that specific part of the woods because the offender knew of its general anonymity and unpopulated nature. Thus, the Philadelphia area was likely his home. However, others suggest that while the boy may have been in Philly at the time of his death, he may actually have been born in a different part of the country or even the world. Because so little is known about his parents or genealogy, he could have been perhaps adopted from Europe or another American orphanage. It is tragically not unheard of to see malnourishment and child abuse take place in orphanages and foster homes, so the boy could have been an unwanted foreigner or misunderstood kid with disabilities, left subjected to the torment of his elders or even fellow foster siblings. It should be stated that the medical inspector theorized the boy had a possible chronic eye ailment, which could have made him partially blind and physically disabled. The eye ailment was not all that the coroner discovered either. Overall, the boy was determined to be between the ages of four and six, having been born sometime within the range of late 1950 to early 1953. He had light brown hair and blue eyes with fair skin and stood about three feet six inches while weighing around 30 pounds. 
He was also tragically found to have been severely malnourished, with surgical scars on his ankle and groin, and an L-shaped scar under his chin. He was beaten and bruised, with the cause of death seemingly being blunt force trauma. Whoever's care he was under, it ended in brutality and disregard for youthful life. And whatever his origin point was, the boy in the box almost certainly suffered prior to death. We can only hope it wasn't for very long. Like all cases of unidentified children and the murders of the innocent youth, it's hard to fathom how an innocent, blossoming human could be taken from the earth before they even had a chance to truly live. The boy in the box was not just a child, but a being full of endless potential. While he may have endured a few rough years of existence and dealt with incredible pain, he persevered longer than anyone should ever have to. He was probably a brave little boy with hopes and dreams to escape a hellish life and make sure it would never happen to others. Maybe America's unknown child was going to rebound from a rough childhood and go on to achieve great things. Maybe he was going to learn a trade or skill in labor. He might have been a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer, a father, a husband, a friend. The boy in the box had a future. One that was cut short on a cold and miserable day in February of 1957. Let's now turn to the timeline of events that unfolded in the mysterious case of the boy in the box. Sometime in early to mid-February in the year of 1957, a young male child who would later be given the moniker Boy in the Box is murdered by blunt force trauma to the head. His hair is chopped off in clumps in a very rushed and unprofessional manner and is wrapped in a plaid blanket. In the moments or days following the killing, the offender places the boy's corpse in a baby bassinet box, which one could buy at J.C. Penney at the time. Around the same time, the offender takes the bassinet box to a wooded area off the Susquehanna Road in Fox Chase, Philadelphia, and places the boy in the box in a semi-concealed area of brush. For an undetermined amount of time, the box sits in the woods, mostly undisturbed by wildlife or suspicious passerby. Sometime during the last weekend of that February, either on Saturday the 23rd or Sunday the 24th, an 18-year-old male by the name of John Powrosnik ventures to his home on Pine Road, very close to Susquehanna Road and the resting place of the boy in the box. He is returning from a basketball game in town, but wants to check out his muskrat traps that he set prior to the weekend. He walks through the brush and drizzling rain and spots the bassinet box. He peers inside to find the corpse of the unidentified boy and stands there in shock. John finally makes it back home, but refuses to tell his parents of his discovery out of fear. He also avoids alerting the police, as his muskrat traps were technically illegal and would bring unwanted attention upon himself. A few days later, at about 3.15pm on Tuesday, February 26th, 26-year-old college student Frederick J. Bananis drives along Susquehanna Road west of Very Road. He spots a rabbit hopping across the road, into the neighboring underbush. Deciding to chase it into the woods, Frederick pulls over and exits his vehicle to follow the critter. Once inside of the woodlands, 
Frederick finds the muskrat traps belonging to John and then the cardboard bassinet box. He looks inside and at first believes there to be a child-sized doll stuffed at the bottom. Upon closer inspection, however, Frederick notices the object could be an actual human corpse. Moments later, Frederick returns to his vehicle and returns home. However, like John before him, he doesn't initially alert the authorities. It would later be revealed that Frederick was a secret peeping Tom and would habitually visit Saskahana Road to spy on the unsuspecting young women at the Good Shepherd School for Wayward Girls, and worried giving up his location to police would expose these illegal tendencies. When Frederick wakes up the following day, on Wednesday, February 27th, He's racked with guilt and second thoughts. He turns on the radio and hears a news bulletin detailing a fresh case about a missing child from New Jersey and feels a growing urge to tell someone about his discovery. Later that morning, Frederick visits two college faculty priests and informs them of his find. They both encourage Frederick to alert the authorities immediately. By the afternoon, Frederick visits the local police departments and tells them about the boy in the box. They investigate the fox chase woodlands and find what would later become America's unknown child, still inside the bassinet box. The Philadelphia PD quickly open an official investigation the same day on February 26th, 1957. Over the following days, every available man in the Philadelphia Police Department and local law enforcement agencies including 270 academy rookies, are assigned to canvas the areas surrounding Saskahanna Road and the greater Fox Chase area for clues. They find a few random objects and suspicious items in the vicinity, but nothing to identify the child. Meanwhile, the coroner's office examines the corpse and highlights the boy's scars, malnourishment, bruised head, and a strange brown substance coating the inside of the esophagus, suggesting the boy must have vomited before dying, despite not eating anything two to three hours before perishing. Once the autopsy is finished, police take fingerprints and footprints of the boy in the box to send to nearby hospitals and locate a match with regional birth records. Despite exhaustive mailings to medical centres all over the northeast, there are no hits. After another few days of an absent identity, authorities begin sending photos of the boy to households statewide. The coroner dresses the boy in clothing and sets up his corpse in a chair for a better photograph of what the child probably resembled in life. The pictures are posted in shops, orphanages, courthouses, and even in envelopes containing citizens' utility bills, but still bring forth no concrete leads. As winter turns to spring, and the spring turns to summer in 1957, investigators continue to run into dead ends in their search for the boy's identity. With no parents or relatives coming forward to claim him, a group of detectives pitch in to buy the boy a tombstone, clothing, and a casket. On July 24th, 1957, the boy in the box is buried in a potter's field in the city of Philadelphia, with the only marked grave displaying number 191. For 41 years, America's unknown child rests at the anonymous grave sites while his case is featured in numerous media profiles and television programs. That is until November 3rd, 1998, when a secured order from an orphan's court is processed to have the body exhumed for DNA extraction. 
During that week, forensic scientists of the FBI Evidence Recovery Program are able to extract vital DNA from the enamel of the boy's teeth. Afterwards, the boy is given a proper funeral at Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedarbrook, Philadelphia, where he is reburied with a large plot of land purchased by multiple donors. The funeral receives massive media attention and reignites the general public's awareness, but still no leads are discovered holding any merit. Over the next two decades, a few solid theories are built by investigators and public citizens alike, but none are proven to be true. Instead, the boy in the box remains unidentified despite major breakthroughs with DNA technology. Presently, that remains to be people's greatest hope, that his DNA will someday be connected with a family member who either comes forward with legitimate proof or unintentionally enters a national database. Without a doubt, the mysterious case of the boy in the box and unidentified person cases in general are usually stuck in states of anonymity for a reason. There simply isn't enough evidence to shed light on their history. If there were obvious clues left behind to reach a conclusion on their identity, well, over 60 years later, we'd probably have them by now. Luckily, one of the major pieces of evidence providing hope in missing identity cases is DNA. The boy in the box did indeed have salvageable DNA on his body and had it extracted after his 1998 exhumation as previously mentioned. However, the type of DNA available, known as mitochondrial DNA, isn't a surefire way to clarify his genealogy. That being said, this type of DNA can confirm or deny genetic relationships through maternal lineage. It just requires a person to come forward with enough evidence of their own that they may be related to the boy in the box in some way. As of 2020, there hasn't yet been a hit with any of the DNA supplied to forensic officers in the past 20 years. While we wait for progress with the DNA samples, there were three other major pieces of physical evidence left at the crime scene in 1957 that deserve a closer inspection. The first was the bassinet box itself, sold by J.C. Penney for $7.50. This specific bassinet and related packaging were from a shipment of 12 units on November 27, 1956 that went to the J.C. Penney store at 100 South 69th Street in Upper Derby, Pennsylvania. All 12 bassinets were sold between December 3rd, 1956 and February 16th, 1957. But, frustratingly, the customer purchase records were not kept in detail as the store had a cash-only policy at the time. Nevertheless, detectives were able to track down all but one of the 12 bassinets and their boxes. The one that was found at the crime scene was actually in good condition, just a bit damp on the outside with white paint smears on the interior. Forensic teams dusted the box, but were unable to find any distinguishable fingerprints. The second clue was a cheap cotton flannel blanket used to wrap the boy up. The blanket itself was faded yet clean, most likely washed just before the crime took place. The played design consisted of block and diamond patterns in white, brown, green, and rust colors. The mending was of a poorly graded cotton thread, and the entire blanket itself was cut in half, one half measuring 33 by 76 inches, and the other part measuring 31 by 51 inches, with a third chunk torn off and missing. 
The Philadelphia Textile Institute ran tests after the medical examiner shipped the blanket to their facility, and they found that it had been manufactured at either the Beacon Mills in Swannanoa, North Carolina, or the Esmond Mills in Granby, Quebec, Canada. Sadly, points of sale could not be investigated, as thousands upon thousands of similar blankets had been shipped across the United States to various wholesale shops, and this specific blanket was one of an infinite amount. The third and final major clue left at the scene was an adult male's cap, size 7 and 1 8, made of royal blue corduroy, containing a leather strap and a buckle on the back side. On the inside of the cap was the tissue paper normally used to make sure the cap kept its original shape. Strangely, the cap was discovered just 17 feet away from the thicket camouflaging the boy in the box, on a carved pathway through the underbrush that led directly from the cap to the bassinet box. The FBI forensics team carried out a detailed analysis of the cap, but found nothing of importance on the garment. However, the local detectives weren't as convinced that there was nothing suspicious about this cap. They checked inside the label and found its manufacturer to be the Robbins Bald Eagle Hats and Cap Company at 2603 South 7th Street in Philadelphia. The detectives then interviewed the business owner, Mrs. Hannah Robbins, who told police the cap was one of 12 made from leftover blue corduroy material before May of 1956. There was one anomaly though, as Miss Robbins explained that the caps were sold without the leather strap and buckle. She informed detectives that one of the cap customers, an unidentified lonesome man in his late 20s, wearing work clothes, speaking without an accent and sporting blonde hair, had come into the store, bought one of those exact caps, and asked her to sew a strap on the back. Mrs. Robbins concluded her story saying the blonde man bore resemblance to the photograph of the boy in the box on the flyers posted around town. What happened to this man was never clarified, and whether the police ever followed this lead through to a conclusion is unknown. While these three items are old and forensically cleared from giving up any leads on an actual suspect, as always, we ask if you know anything that might be of use to investigators related to the box, blanket, or cap, no matter how small, let the proper authorities know. If you'd like a closer inspection of these case points yourself, check out the case file photographs supplied in the Google Drive link posted in the episode's description. Let's now turn to the most prominent theories in answering the mystery of the boy in the box. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Within the first few years of the hunt for the boy in the box's identity, hundreds of tips and theories poured into the Philadelphia Police Department. Some were legitimate claims of possible family relations. Others were attempts to stake 15 minutes of fame with an infamous phenomena. 
and sadly enough, most of them all led to the exact same place, a dead end with more questions than answers. For example, both the general public and lead investigators on the case wondered if America's unknown child could be the body of another missing child, that of Stephen Craig Dammon from Mitchell Air Force Base in New York. Stephen was kidnapped at just 34 months of age outside a supermarket in Long Island on October 31st, 1955. He was about 38 inches tall and weighed at around 32 pounds, also sporting light colored hair. Detectives reasoned he would be the same age and physical stature as the boy in the box had he survived that long and checked into the comparisons. However, besides a few vague similarities in their appearance, the juxtaposed details were not as promising. The footprints on Damon's birth certificate did not match the boys, nor did the x-rays of the boy display a healed bone fracture in the left arm, like Stephen had before he went missing. Most telling of all, the boy in the box had normal kidneys in the autopsy's findings, whereas Stephen had abnormally large kidneys as a two-year-old. With enough physical disparities, investigators on both the boy in the box and the Darren case agreed that they were two separate children. To confirm this, forensic experts collected DNA from Damon's surviving sister in 2003 and compared it to the boy in the boxes. The earlier conclusion was proven once and for all. America's unknown child and Stephen Damon did not come from the same mother. Another strong lead came into the Philadelphia PD in early 1961. Residents of the Southern United States who were following the Boy in the Box case sent newspaper clippings and other bulletins to Pennsylvanian authorities that reported on a couple who had recently been arrested for child neglect and murder. The couple, Kenneth E. and Irene Adelaide Dudley, were carnival workers who'd been caught in Lawrenceville, Virginia, killing their then seven-year-old daughter through harsh exposure and malnutrition. When brought in for an interrogation, the Dudleys actually admitted to killing six of their 10 children in a similar fashion, abusing them through neglect and malnutrition until they died, then dumping their bodies across random points in the United States Southern Belt. Investigators followed this lead and found the Dudleys had been telling the truth, recovering one of their children's corpses in a phosphate mine and two others in a hidden lake. However, through intense questioning and cooperation from the Dudley family, it was eventually ruled out that the boy in the box could have been one of the kids, despite the similarities in modus operandi. Probably the biggest dead-end theory that arose in the case was that of the foster home predicament. Sometime in 1960, an investigator for the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office named Remington Bristow dived deep into his own boy-in-the-box research. He was especially fascinated with the Morden Road foster home, located just 1.5 miles from the Fox Chase crime scene and full of peculiar subjects. It was operated by Arthur and Catherine Nicoletti and Catherine's daughter of a previous marriage, Anna Marie Nagel. Anna Marie had tragically given birth to three stillborn children in the years prior, and the only son she ever bore was killed in an electrocution accident at an amusement park. Apparently, these children were all conceived out of wedlock and kept secret by the Nicoletti couple. 
Instead, their focus was on boys and girls who were brought to their large stone home from both city and statewide shelters, the foster children sometimes staying with the Nicolettis for weeks up to a few years. When the boy in the box was discovered, the Nicolettis housed five girls and three boys, all of whom cooperated with police when they initially investigated the house in 1957. When Remington started his own journey in solving the mystery, he struggled to find anything additional of merit. Thus, he sought advice from a New Jersey psychic, an elderly woman by the name of Florence Sternfeld. Florence claimed to have the ability to identify unknown subjects, and all she needed was a piece of metal associated with the person. Remington, perhaps out of pure desperation, took a couple of metal staples from the bassinet box to Florence in New Jersey, where she informed him that he needed to look for a big house with a log cabin on the property, and that it would be connected to the boy in the box. Bristow returned to Philadelphia and started searching the Fox Chase area for such a landmark. He eventually stumbled upon the Morden Road Foster Home, a large house with a log cabin in the back, where the foster children would sometimes camp out in. Wanting to confirm his discovery, Remington brought Florence back to Pennsylvania with him and had her examine the crime scene on Susquehanna Road. From there, without any prior knowledge of the area, Florence guided him directly to the foster home. As a believer in psychics, Remington was sure he had his major development under his belt and kept a close eye on the family. A year later in 1961, the Nicoletti couple removed themselves from the foster care business and sold their home in a public auction. Remington attended a preview of the interior furniture and was shocked to discover a dusty and unused baby bassinet, quite similar to the one inside the J.C. Penny branded box that held the boy's corpse. Hung on the clothesline outside of the home were played blankets, also similar to the flannel blankets wrapped around America's unknown child. These blankets were cut in half, too, to fit the metal cots in which they were placed. Remington also noticed a duck pond on the property, a possible body of water that could account for the dead boy's water-wrinkled hands and feet, signifying that he had been submerged underwater prior to ending up in the fox chase underbrush. Despite an alarming number of coincidences, Remington could never pin anything of a criminal nature on the Nicoletti couple. When police investigators finally gave in to Remington's pleas for the family to be re-interrogated, they contacted Arthur Nicoletti in Dublin, Pennsylvania, but again found zero evidence of wrongdoing. In disbelief, Remington called Arthur himself, demanding a lie detector test be taken. Arthur politely declined, but it didn't stop Remington from concocting a theory that Arthur was covering up the murder of another out-of-wedlock child birthed by Anna Marie as to protect her reputation. In a last-ditch effort in 1988 to find incriminating evidence against the Nicolettis, Remington attempted to contact the doctor who treated the foster home's children, after discovering in old police documents that he had never been interviewed in the first investigation. Sadly, the doctor had since passed away, and his widowed wife informed Remington that she had thrown out all of his personal records. Nevertheless, it didn't retract Remington's surefire theory that Arthur Nicoletti was involved, and he took this theory to the grave with him when he died in 1993. 
When the investigation was reopened in 1998, just five years later, investigators for the Philadelphia Police Department decided maybe they should follow up on Remington's borderline obsessive theories. Homicide detective Tom Augustine joined up with a few local officers in Dublin, Pennsylvania, and interviewed Arthur once more. This time, he was joined by his new wife, Anna Marie, his former stepdaughter. Again, the couple fully cooperated with Augustine's questions and gave detailed answers on all the family members who were brought up. After years of second-guessing and skepticism, Augustine officially ruled out the foster home theory and its relation to the boy in the box. In the years since, random tipsters and those associated with the Nicoletti foster family have come forward claiming to have secrets about their first home, and details that could connect America's unknown child to the business. However, each and every one has been ruled out by investigators, as most of the information was already widely known. Perhaps the most plausible of all the open-ended theories first circulated in February 2002. 45 years after the boy in the box was found. A Cincinnati, Ohio woman going by the alias of Martha, or better known as M, reached out to the Philadelphia authorities via her psychiatrist with supposed information regarding the boy in the box. At first, all M told them was that she had an abusive mother who once purchased a boy from his birth parents in the summer of 1954 and abused him on and off for 2.5 years until one day she killed him in an act of wrath after he vomited baked beans during his bath. Apparently, M had told this story to her psychiatrist way back in 1989, but was too fearful to alert authorities of it for another 13 years. When investigators realized much of M's story aligned with case details, such as the brown substance lining the boy's esophagus being the baked beans and his water-wrinkled extremities, they visited M at her psychiatrist's office in May of 2002. During their interview, M revealed when she was only 10 years old, she and her mother drove to a rendezvous where they met with a couple and exchanged an envelope full of cash for their baby boy named Jonathan, who was mentally handicapped and overall unhealthy. M continued the twisted story explaining that her mother was physically and sexually abusive and bought the boy as another outlet for sexual abuse. This came as a surprise, as M also said she grew up in a wealthier suburb of Philadelphia called Lower Merion in the 1950s, where her parents were respected employees of the Lower Merion School District. No one suspected M's mother to be a paedophile or abusive, when, in reality, she housed the child named Jonathan in their basement, where he could not talk to or see anyone from outside, and forced him to sleep in an old refrigerator box and use a drain in the floor as a toilet. This went on for two and a half years, until the mother snapped and slammed poor Jonathan's head against the floor until he died. After this despicable act of murder, in order to shift his appearance and hopefully disguise his identity, the mother hurriedly chopped off Jonathan's hair and clipped his fingernails. M then stated that her mother wrapped him up in an old blanket and took both her and Jonathan in the car to traverse the countryside and find a good spot to hide the corpse. They ended up at Susquehanna Road in Fox Chase, when the mother realized a rural landscape with a little woodland would be perfect for camouflage. 
However, while she and M went to the trunk to retrieve Jonathan's body, M told police that a male motorist pulled over on the side of the road and exited his vehicle to see if she and her mother needed assistance. The mother turned back and made sure to block her license plate from the man's vision, insisting that they were okay and didn't need the man's help. The man finally gave in and departed, leaving M and her mother to dump the child's body somewhere in the underbrush within a box they already found on the ground. M's story perplexed investigators as it was full of details that matched the boy in the box mystery. However, they also had to take in M's complex history with mental illness and trauma. Thus, they returned to Philadelphia and launched a special six month project that focused purely on the story of M. Despite covering every angle and going above and beyond to corroborate her testimony, they found nothing to prove any of her claims. They even visited the old Lower Merion house to search for trace evidence that may still reside in the basement, but found, once again, absolutely nothing. Presently, investigators do not believe M to be a trustworthy witness or to have any relation to America's unknown child, citing her stories as hysterical make-believe full of information she probably gleaned from reports in the 45 years between the discovery and her reveal to the Philadelphia detectives. While it may be easy to write off M as an unreliable narrator due to her psychological background, there is one major piece to her story that is actually agreed on by another witness. Back in 1957, an anonymous motorist approached police soon after the boy in the box was recovered and the case went public, sharing a peculiar incident that happened to him on Sunday, February 24th, 1957. The unidentified man claimed that just a mere 200 feet from where the child's body would be found, he had pulled his vehicle over after seeing an adult female between the ages of 40 and 50 and a young boy aged between 12 and 14 standing by the trunk of their car on the side of Susquehanna Road. He approached them thinking they had a flat tire and needed help, but said that both the woman and the boy ignored him and never said a word, simply turning their back on him while the woman groped something in the trunk. The man said that the duo seemed to purposefully block the license plate numbers, but not wanting to cause any problems, he simply backed up, returned to his car, and drove away. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. The male motorist's account slides in neatly with M's story, aside from two details. First, the man said that the duo was a woman and a 12-year-old boy, not a 10-year-old girl like M was. However, being in the middle of winter, they could have been dressed in a way that made their gender difficult to pinpoint. Secondly, the man said this happened on February 24th, which would put it one day after John Poroznik first saw the boy in the box's corpse. Now, it's possible either the man or John got their dates wrong. However, if not, 
This would mean the boy was barely in the underbush before he was discovered, which goes against the medical examiner's belief that he had been lying there for two to three days prior to his discovery. Regardless of the foggy details in these two testimonies, it's important to remember that just because M suffered from mental illness and experienced trauma throughout her life, does not mean the story was make-believe or fantasy. Too often, we stigmatize and discredit those with psychological barriers as liars or untrustworthy. It is possible that M was telling the truth, and just because the detectives don't fully believe her does not mean her experiences weren't valid. Sadly, this type of account cannot be proven nor disproven via DNA, unless a relative of the birth parents comes forward. Once again, it seems we are left grasping at straws. If anyone out there has any information that might support the woman by the name of M's testimony, please reach out to the proper authorities. Before we divulge our hypothesis of America's unknown child's unsolved identity, we want to make known our conclusions presented in Cold Case Detective are purely logical speculation based on evidence, circumstance, and factual subtext. We are only privy to the same information presented in each video, and we do not promise certainty or an expert guarantee on the findings we reach in closing. We simply observe, research, and report. In terms of the boy in the box, it is obviously impossible to guess who exactly he is. With DNA evidence in existence, it's only a matter of playing the waiting game for the right information to come forward or for a hidden secret to be revealed. Being just a child, the boy in the box simply wasn't around long enough to leave behind many, if any, traces of himself. His short existence robbing us of our ability to turn back the clock and really dig into his life up until the point of death. That being said, we do believe that of all the theories examined thus far, and there are hundreds of them, M's does seem to hold the most weight, simply considering the vast amount of detail included that matches up with the boy's autopsy, as well as the inclusion of the unidentified motorist's story 45 years prior. Even if M's account cannot be conclusively linked to the life of the boy in the box, the unspeakable horrors the boy named Jonathan underwent were cruel, inhumane, and undeniably tragic in their own right. They are experiences no living person should endure, let alone a child. Of course, we cannot rule out that some of the other theories and small-scale leads could be the key to solving the mystery. So many of the early tips simply weren't investigated thoroughly enough, or leave a lot to be desired by modern-day sleuths. Could the boy's identity be the sleeping young male child held by an unidentified man on a Philadelphia, New Jersey bus route in Camden, New Jersey? A fellow female passenger believes so, confirming the boy in the box was the same child when she visited the morgue in March of 1951. Despite this, the police never located the man, even though the woman, who was an amateur artist, sketched a profile of the man after seeing the boy. The sketch is available in our Google Drive case photo folder, should you wish to examine it further. And to follow up, could the man in the sketch be the same man who purchased the blue corduroy hat at Robin's Bald Eagle Hat and Cap Co? The same man who requested a leather strap to be stitched on like the one found near the crime scene. 
Remember, police never followed that lead up either, and so never made contact with the mysterious buyer. We can't even completely rule out foul play with the two gentlemen who discovered the boy in the box initially. Did Frederick Benonis hide his findings from police because he was guilty of being a peeping Tom, or because he was guilty of something more sinister? Did John Porosnik wait to inform authorities of the corpse in the woods because he was protecting his muskrat traps, or because he was protecting himself due to the possibility that he could be hunting more than muskrats in the woodlands? Regardless of who the perpetrator was, or whose story might be the most accurate, it's important to remember that the boy in the box was so much more than what his moniker implicates. He was a beautiful child with a father and a mother, and even if they didn't care for him, someone in the world did. He had a name and a spirit, he had likes and dislikes, he felt joys and he felt sorrows. He might have been a boy named Jimmy who loved going to baseball games, or an Edward who loved playing the piano. Maybe he was Junior from Philadelphia who enjoyed wintertime playdates with the kids in his neighborhood. The boy in the box had a life, and though it was taken from him, we must look to bring a light to the future of America's unknown child. A future with a legacy that focuses not on tragedy, but on justice on providing an enigmatic child with an identity, a story, and a soul. A box of mysteries no more. This episode of the Cold Case Detective Podcast was a particularly difficult case to dive into. Although all murder cases are tragic, cases involving the death and abuse of children are, to me, and I believe to most of us, the most painful. But that doesn't mean we can choose to ignore them or turn away from the realities these brave children had to face. It can be hard not to give way to despair, but remember, there is hope out there for us all to help build a better, safer world for all who inhabit it, and a brighter future can be found. We'd also like to give a special shout out to all those involved in the America's Unknown Child official website, as they have compiled an unbelievable archive of resources full of both case details and law enforcement contacts. Their exhaustive work on this case has been instrumental in keeping the discussion alive and bringing awareness over more than six decades and counting. We want to thank them from the bottom of our hearts. If you would like to submit a tip, please call the Philadelphia Police Department Homicide Unit at 215-686-3334, or you can use any of the various contact mediums provided by americasunknownchild.net. This is Cold Case Detective. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cold Case Detective podcast. Should you wish to delve deeper into the mystery, you can follow the case file link included in the show notes, which contains important photographs, documents, maps, and further reading relevant to the case. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a five-star rating wherever you listen. It really helps us expand our reach and bring awareness to the cases we cover. If you would like us to investigate a specific case, perhaps even one close to home or that of a loved one, please fill out the submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening, 
and I'll see you in a fortnight with a new episode.